Father, this morning as we open up your scriptures, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts in such a way that when we leave here today, we have a greater understanding of you um, in such a way, Lord, that we love you more. We have a, a bigger view of your majesty and your glory. Lord, I pray that as a result of reading these scriptures, Lord, we would have a greater understanding, Lord, of how much you love us. Lord, it's such a privilege to be able to open up the Bible and to read from it and to hear from you. So, Lord, I even pray that as I speak from the word, Lord, that you would help me to say things that are accurate to the text and, and Lord, not veer off of that. And, Lord, I just pray this morning you would, you would build our faith through the reading of your word. And, Lord, I pray that you would produce in our hearts just a joyful authentic and voluntary desire to surrender our whole hearts to you, Lord, our whole minds, Lord, our entire lives, that, Lord, we would just surrender it to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want uh, all of us just to do, do an exercise, kind of a mind exercise with me, if you will, okay? So I just, if, if you would pretend that you have your kind of own personal whiteboard, all right? And scribbled up on that whiteboard are all of your thoughts, all of your beliefs, and all of your assumptions about Christianity, all right? So if you grew up in the faith and you've been uh, a Christian for a very long time, just imagine everything that you believe about Christianity, about God, the Bible, and everything is scribbled up on that whiteboard, uh, if you struggle with doubt, as most of us do struggle with doubt, I, I want you to pretend that on that whiteboard are, are all the things that you're sure about when it comes to your faith and, and all of the things that you struggle with as far as doubting or wondering if it's really true. Uh, or maybe if you're not a Christian at all or you're not sure what you believe when it comes to Jesus. You, you still have beliefs when it comes to Christianity. Uh, you have beliefs of things that you think are crazy to believe or things that you really question or you might have certain assumptions about Christianity. So just pretend all of that is scribbled up there on the whiteboard. All right, and here's what I want us to do, right? We have our whiteboards, everything's up there. I want you to grab an eraser and just erase every bit of it. Doesn't matter who, where you're at when it comes to. Now, I'm not saying dismiss all of it. All right, just for the next 30 minutes, okay? Let's erase it, and then we can put everything back on after I'm done uh, with this sermon. But sometimes, I think, when we need some fresh perspective, it's helpful just to have this crisp new whiteboard to scribble some things up on, at least if you're like me, if you're visual like I am. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to study Psalm 116. We already read from it earlier. And what I want us to do is from that psalm is reconstruct the foundations of what it means to believe in and follow Jesus. All right, when our whiteboard gets cluttered with all of these different thoughts and doubts and assumptions, when it comes to our faith in Christ, I think sometimes what can happen is we run the risk of losing the core, the center of what we believe that all of these thoughts and beliefs should come out of. All right, so here's what I want you to do. You got your clean whiteboard, 
All right, I want you to write numbers one to three down of it, just one to three, because what we're gonna do is we're gonna reconstruct what it means to believe in and follow Jesus in just three steps, okay? And the reason why I want us to be clear, crystal clear about these three steps is because if we lose these three steps, all right, if we reject any of these three steps, if we dismiss them, if we forget about them, if they get lost in the clutter, then the result becomes a distorted Christianity. Uh, the kind of Christianity that has been so, I think, dominant in America, a, a Christianity that is nominal, um, inauthentic, a Christianity that I think unbelievers find uninspiring, a Christianity that, for those who grew up in it, quickly become bored of it. And so I want us to erase that whiteboard, all right, and be sure that the definition that we put up, that we start from when it comes to Christianity, is the right one. And it's these three steps, okay? So we're going to go to Psalm 116 to get these three steps. Now, like I said, we read from it earlier, so we're going to reread it, but just in bits and pieces together. And if you're unfamiliar with the Psalms, all right, the Psalms are this large book in the Old Testament in the middle of your Bible, and really what the Psalms are, a collection of songs and poems that are written to God. And the Psalms are great because we find all kinds of these authentic emotions in the Psalms. We have Psalms that express thankfulness to God and Psalms that express gratitude and, and psalms that express anger towards God and desire for judgment. I mean, we see all of these different kinds of psalms. And the one we're going to read this morning, 116, is a psalm of thanksgiving. The, the psalmist is praising God for the salvation that he has received. All right, and so as we jump into Psalm 116, the way I want us to start is I want us to draw our attention to how the psalmist opens it and how he closes his song. All right, so let's look at the way he opens and closes. Look at verses one and two. He says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. As long as I live, I am going to follow and call on the name of the Lord. Jump to the end of the psalm, verses 16 to 19. The psalmist says, O Lord, I'm your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in the midst, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. When you look at this language that the psalmist opens and closes the psalm with, all right, you do not read about someone who is bored or uninspired by their faith in God. Actually, quite the opposite. Uh, this sounds like someone who is all in, all right? They are lifting their hands to God and they're saying, God, I am all yours. You have my entire life, right? In, in verses one and two, he declares his love and his commitment to the Lord. 
I mean, it's easy to say with your lips that you love God and that you have an affection for him and you always wanna follow him, but when is the last time that we honestly felt in the depths of our heart a, just this affection for God, right? This, this kind of love for God where we just go, man, I would do anything for you. You say jump, I say how high. And maybe if you're not a follower of Christ, or if you're not a Christian, maybe this, that idea kind of sounds crazy or even fanatical that someone would have that kind of love for God that we have faith in, love so much that we would do anything for him. But at the end of the psalm, the psalm says, I'm your servant. I'll do anything for you. I will sacrifice anything for you. You can have every part of my life, all right? So this is a guy who is fanatical, all right? He loves God and he will follow God anywhere. But as we look at these verses, we don't get a sense that this psalmist is saying that saying these things to God out of reluctance or compulsion. No, this, this psalmist is joyfully and voluntarily declaring these things to God. There is an authenticity about his worship that's coming out of his heart, right? There's not an angle attached to it. He's not manipulating God to try to get some sort of blessing. This is just pure love and affection for God. Right? I know as a follower of Jesus, there are seasons in my life that I wish I could have this kind of pure zeal for God, this kind of authentic, voluntary joy in God. When we think about the effort that we put into following Jesus, obeying his word, worshiping him, could that effort be described in our lives as joyful and voluntary and authentic? I mean, when we think about God and his holiness and we think about his goodness and his majesty and all these things, do our hearts immediately respond to God with, God, I'm your servant. You can have every part of my life. My money is yours. My relationships are yours. My career, my dreams and what I want for the future, it all belongs to you, whatever you say goes, because that is how much I love you. And so, what we see here, if we go back to our whiteboard, is actually step three, the last step. We're starting at the bottom, right? So on your whiteboard, here I want you to write, number three, I want you to just write, joyful and authentic obedience. Joyful and authentic obedience. And as we continue to look at this psalm, we're gonna see what produces this kind of joyful and all-encompassing devotion to God. So let's go back and we'll grab steps one and two. Look at verses one and two with me again. It says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me. Obviously, the reason why this psalmist is declaring his love for God is because God listened to his plea for mercy. And this brings us to verse three, because verse three describes why the psalmist was pleading to God for mercy. See, the Bible is not afraid to declare truth. Because the Bible shows us that it is when we engage the truth, even if we don't like the truth, that is when we begin to really see who God is. Look at verse three. 
the psalmist says, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. I mean, what we have here in verse three is this incredibly vivid imagery of the reality of death. I mean, the Hebrew here, if you go and, and, and look up the Hebrew, literally reads this. It literally says, the ropes of death were wrapped around me. I mean, imagine yourself being completely wrapped in rope and both ends of that rope are being pulled tighter and tighter and tighter to the point where you couldn't breathe. That's the poetic imagery of verse three. Like quicksand. You start sinking deeper and deeper into the ground and the deeper you go, the tighter the ground gets around you, the more you can't breathe and the more panic sets in. It's the reality of the inevitability of death is what the psalmist is responding to. I mean, we can relate with this feeling. If we're honest, we all fear death. I mean, we look at the decay of our world. We look at school shootings out of control. We Wars and illness and poverty and abuse and brokenness in our families and slavery and addiction and, and all of these things that we see happen around our world and it gives you a feeling of helplessness, of suffocation, of what do we do to address these things in our world? Sometimes the only response we have is sorrow and panic because it's inevitable. The psalmist then says the pangs, or you could insert the word there, the horrors of Sheol had laid a hold of him. Sheol is the Hebrew concept of hell where one goes and is forever separated from God. So not only was the reality of death causing panic in the psalmist, the idea of the eternality, the finality of death was causing the psalmist to panic. I mean, do you ever think of the eternality of death? So before we move too quickly beyond verse three, I wanna jump off of this verse and go to the rest of the scriptures to build a biblical view of death. Because as we build a biblical view of death, we'll have a greater understanding of why the psalmist was crying out for mercy. If we start in the beginning of the Bible, we read in the Beginning of Genesis, that God made everything and declared it good, meaning there was no death, there was no sin or corruption. But we just get three chapters in and we see death enter the picture. It's a direct result of Adam and Eve's disobedience to the word of God. More than disobedience, it was really Adam and Eve seeking independence from God. God said, this is what's good, this is what's not good. And Adam and Eve wanted to say, we don't want to have to follow you in that. We want to make those decisions. They did not want to live how God had instructed them to live. They wanted to live as their own God. And the scriptures tell us that this broke all of creation. And death was now a consequence of their rebellion against God. But this rebellion in the heart of Adam and Eve became a sickness that spread to all of mankind. Romans chapter five makes this clear for us in verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We were all born with a heart that does not worship God as Lord. And it is a corrupt heart. And what the Bible says is that our hearts are filled with sinful desires. James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived birth, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And, and just to make sure that we are all understand that the Bible is very clear that this reality touches every single person, that every person has a sinful heart and also deserves death. Romans not, uh, 3, starting in verse 9, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, unbelievers and believers, are under sin. As is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So I've already haven't convinced you that the Bible paints a grim and suffocating view of sin and death to the point where you ask yourself why you would even believe this. It gets worse. The Bible teaches that those who are sinful, which is everyone, will be punished through spending eternity in hell. We learn of this straight from the mouth of Jesus, Matthew 25. Starting in verse 31, Jesus is talking. He says, when the Son of Man, which is himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, every person, doesn't matter who they are, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then he'll say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So there you have it, a, a biblical explanation of sin and death. And when we look upon these things, and if these things are true, we can identify with the psalmist. It seems suffocating. I mean, it's almost, I feel weird spending time on this sermon point, right? There's something inside of me saying, Alan, move on. This is difficult to preach. It's the pangs of Sheol, it's the cords of death, right, around us. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you might even be thinking, like, how could you possibly believe that? Why is that even a part of your faith? That seems way too harsh. How could a good God do that? But remember what I asked you to do this morning. Take everything you think about Christianity, all the assumptions, just we're erasing it, and we're putting our three points on the board, Okay? And so we've already put up number three, joyful and authentic obedience. And so here's what I have for you, number one. I want you to put this, universal sin and death. Step one, universal sin and death. So let me ask you this. What would you do if you were caught in quicksand? 
If you were sinking in the ground and the sand got so tight around your body that it was literally impossible for you to wiggle yourself out. Like the strength of the ground was constricting your body. What do you do in that moment when you know there's nothing I can do? What do you do? You scream. At the top of your lungs, you cry out for help. You cry out and say, someone, anyone, I don't care who it is, come save me because I'm about to go into the ground. And that's what we see here in verse four. That's the passion of verse four. Verse four, then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul from this. If this is true of me, then save me, deliver me, because I don't know what I can do to make this not true of me. I need help. The cords of death are wrapped around me, and I'm not strong enough to break them. Have you been in that place before in your life where you were completely helpless and you had no other option but just to scream out for help? If you're not a follower of Jesus, have you ever prayed to a God you don't even believe in? Because at that time, that's all you had. Might as well give it a try. This is where the psalmist is. And we see God's response in verses five to 15. But I want you to look at verse 15 with me first. Look at verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Just stop. Just minutes ago, we were talking about the horrors and the suffocation of death. Of the inevitability of death, the finality of it, the, how, how it just causes panic when we think about it. How can we go from talking about that to using the word precious to describe death? Spoiler alert, yes, the Christian faith has some hard truths for us to think about and to understand and accept in our world, but at the end of the day, the core of our faith is the complete reversal of death. The psalmist cries out for rescue, and that is exactly what God does. And so in the same way that we jumped off of Psalm 116 and looked at the rest of scripture to build a biblical view of death, I want to do the same thing when it comes to building a view of salvation. Look at verse 5. He says, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The psalmist says that God is both gracious and righteous. How can you be both at the same time? Our whiteboard says universal sin and death. So we obviously all deserve the penalty of death for our sin against a holy and majestic and good God who is far more glorious than we are. God is righteous to judge us appropriately, but it also says that God is gracious. We'll go back to Romans 5. It's what we just read from. We read in Romans 5.12 that death, guilt, corruption spread to all men through Adam, the first man. But look at Romans 5, starting in verse 18, says, it says, yes, Adam's one sin. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. 
So just as, verse 21, just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God in his grace and mercy, knowing that he had to justly punish our sin, to preserve his own righteousness, made a way to rescue us by sending his son, Jesus. He came, Jesus came as a human being and lived his life righteously before God. He was not like the first Adam. He was a new Adam, a new man to represent his people. And so Jesus did not meet the qualifications of death, but he still died because God takes our sin that qualified us for death and he puts it on Jesus And he took the righteous life that qualifies Jesus for eternal life and he puts it on us. So Jesus faces the horror of death in our place and God preserves his righteousness by justly punishing our sin upon Jesus. I mean, this is why Jesus, the night before he died on the cross, was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood, Anxious and stressed because he knew in a mere few hours he'd be hanging on the cross. And he was sweating blood because he felt the cords of death wrapping around him. He felt the pangs of shale. He felt that fear in our place and all of this so we could declare verses seven through nine. Look at this, return, oh my soul, to your rest. No more pangs, no more horror, no more suffocation and panic. Return, oh my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death and my eyes from tears and my feet from stumbling. I will, I love this, I will walk with the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So step one is universal sin and death on your whiteboard. And so here here it is, step two, rescue in Christ. Universal sin and death for everyone, rescue in Christ. And, And how do we move from step one to step two? Is that universal too? Uh, Is the work of Christ applied to all people no matter if they believe it or not? We'll look at verse six, Psalm 116. It says, the Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. It's clear in our psalm that the Lord rescued the psalmist after his cry for mercy. So listen, becoming a follower of Jesus and being a recipient of this salvation is incredibly simple. It does not come through your good works. It does not come through your knowledge of the Bible. It does not come through your church attendance. It comes through being self-aware enough to know that the cords of death are wrapped around me, that my sin has put me in this place. I have sinned against a holy and righteous God and he is good and he is right to judge me. 
What is my only hope? Mercy. That's it. It's mercy. That's my only hope. What do you do when you're sinking in quicksand and you can't get out? It's a very simple answer. You cry for mercy. And what does a person do who is suffocating from the cords of death and feeling that horror? And when they cried out for mercy, they received it. What does that person do? That person worships. God, you've created me to have abundant life underneath your word. And I, along with all mankind, have rebelled against that. Yet you saved me from the judgment that I rightfully deserved. You have my whole life. I want to go back to how you created me to live, with you in the seat of telling me what's good and right and true, and I in the seat of servant following you because I know that that's where my joy is found. You say what is true, I'll follow. You have all of me, right? Step three, joyful and authentic obedience to God. All right, this is what I want us to see on our whiteboard, right? That's been cleared of all the clutter. Step one, we've all sinned against God and deserve death, but God is merciful, and if we confess our sin and cry out to him for his mercy, step two, we are met with the saving grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you feel the snares of death and cry out to God in desperation for mercy and you find it in Jesus, step three, that unleashes a life of joyful, authentic obedience. Not to earn salvation, but in response to our salvation. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to be a Christian in those steps. You can't have true, authentic Christianity if you don't have these three. Earlier I said that when we let our whiteboard get cluttered with all these thoughts about Christianity, we can lose the core. And I believe that in our context today, we see this most often, I think in our country, in our nation, I think we see this most often in what I'll call nominal Christianity and liberal Christianity. Nominal Christianity is being a Christian in name only, right? It's, it's, I would identify as a Christian. I would say I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't really impact the way I live. It doesn't, you know, I don't, my day-to-day life isn't impacted by my faith. I just kind of identify it as a Christian. That's nominal Christianity. Liberal Christianity is being a Christian, but picking and choosing what I want to believe and what I not, don't want to believe, Right? They would say they're a Christian and they believe in Jesus, but the only person they want to submit to when it comes to what's true or what's not true is themselves. And I think that both nominal Christianity and liberal Christianity has the same cause. And that cause is their whiteboard doesn't have room for step one. The nominal Christian hasn't truly felt the reality of step one. They're not aware of the wickedness of their sin. And therefore, they haven't desperately cried out for mercy. It's almost as if they're just entitled to step two. 
Right? It's easy to be a nominal Christian in America and live your life in Christian circles and never feel the weight of sin. Therefore, their lives wouldn't be marked by joyful and authentic obedience to God. The liberal Christian rejects step one. Whoa, that is way, way too harsh to be in my faith. How could I possibly believe in that? So, so I'm just gonna, that's offensive, so I'm gonna step back from that. My whiteboard doesn't have space for step one. We should reject that. And at the end of the day, the love of Jesus will win everyone over, whether they confess their sin or not. And I believe that today, when non-believers think of Christians in America, what they see is the lives of nominal and or liberal Christians. Not the lives of those who are marked by joyful, authentic obedience in response to rescue. Right? If you're not a Christian, maybe this is a bit why it has been hard to consider believing in Jesus. You've seen Christians who are self-righteous. They're proud of themselves for their morality and they look down on others who don't live as rightfully as they do. And I think the reality is for self-righteous Christians, these people skip step one. You can't truly face step one and not come out into step two humbled. A recipient of grace of mercy is not proud, but they will boast in their savior. Maybe you've seen Christians who are not teachable they get offended by being confronted on anything, right? They can't handle their weaknesses being pointed out to them. Well, they probably skip step one as well. You can't skip step one and not come to step two like the Apostle Paul who says, I will boast in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Maybe you've seen Christians who treat God like a genie, right? Just trying to manipulate him to get some sort of blessing out of it. I think that's a result of skipping step one too. You can't face step one and not come out to step two knowing that the greatest blessing of all is rescue in Christ. That rescue is enough for contentment in this life. It's possible, it's possible if you are having a hard time believing in Jesus that the Christianity that has been modeled to you is not true Christianity. And I want to exhort you today to consider that if you're not a Christian, even though you may have seen a poor example of what it means to be a Christian, step one is still a reality for you, as it is for all of us. And also that step two, rescue in Christ, is available to you as well if you cry out for mercy. And to those of us who do believe have you skipped step one in how you relate to God? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ produce in you a joyful, authentic obedience to God that says you have rescued me and now you have all of me? Every part of my life is yours now. You are Lord and I'm glad, I'm grateful to be your servant, to be your child you are good, you are holy, you are righteous, you are gracious, you're merciful, I don't question you, your thoughts are higher than mine, and you have all of me. Every single part of my life is yours. I surrender my life to you. 
Church, if we want authentic faith, let's not skip step one. Let me pray for us. God, this morning, as we look upon Psalm 116, I'm so grateful for it. Because Psalm 116 does not mince words. Psalm 116 is not afraid, like the rest of your scriptures, to tell us the truth. And Lord, I pray that if there are people in this room who have never truly realized the depths of their own sin, if there are people who have never truly realized the predicament they are in under your judgment if they have not yet trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray that now your spirit would bring that conviction upon their hearts. And Lord, that's not to overwhelm them with sorrow, Lord. That's to push them to cry out for mercy. Because God, you are righteous. You do not turn away from judging sin. But Lord, you are gracious. And you hear our cries for mercy. And you made a way in and through Jesus that Lord, we could be back in right relationship with you. And so, Lord, I pray if there are folks in here who have not trusted in Christ that this morning they would cry out for mercy, that they would trust you in their hearts now to save them from their sin. And that, Lord, you would unleash in them a life of joyful, authentic obedience to you. Lord, help this church never to veer away from telling the truth. Lord, as the old Puritan said, until our sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Lord, I pray that this would be a church filled with people who live authentic, joyful, obedient lives following you because, Lord, you have saved us and you have rescued us. Lord, you have all of us. Pray that as we sing this last song, Lord, you would be just honored and worshiped and glorified. Amen.